Well, welcome, my friends, once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast, episode 265. And man, I am glad to be with you guys again. I know we've been doing this every other week kind of thing. I'm hoping soon enough that we're going to fall into an every week pattern again. Uh, but things have been busy, but now, hey, I'm about, I'm almost halfway through numbers at this point, which is going to help alleviate some of the pressure. Because honestly, to go through the book of numbers in only five weeks, it's got all kinds of crazy written all over it for me, because especially like this week, kind of a big chunk, really important things are going on. And it's hard when you have, you know, anything from chapter 13 to chapter 21, trying to cover all that ground in one week, you're having to decide like, what parts of the story do I refer to? What parts of the story do you let fall away? What are the big ideas? And and how do you decide how many verses you're going to read and all of that? So numbers I knew was going to be a slog for me just in that sense of things. Uh, So, you know, that's why the podcast has been every other week. And then also, as some of you know, I was uh, wrapping up my certification to become a personal trainer with the National Academy of Sports Medicine. I talked about that, I think, in the last podcast. Um, And that just has so much science behind it and memorization of all these different elements of science that it was like, okay, between doing that and doing numbers and just the other church-related responsibilities and everything else... I just couldn't do the podcast every single week, but hopefully by next week, I'm going to be getting after it again. So that's kind of the heart I have at this juncture uh, and everything else. The other thing is kind of funny. I've had people asking me now that I've decided to do this personal training thing, like in the evenings when Ellen's at at the hospital on shift, people are like, are you going to still be a pastor? I'm like, yeah, I'm still going to be a pastor. For me, this was just kind of a fun thing. It's getting me out of the fishbowl. It's letting me rub shoulders with people in a different context. And to be honest, I think it's awesome even from the everyday missionary perspective Because most of you who are listening, you have regular jobs out in the regular world. I'm, again, kind of in the salt shaker, so to speak. I'm just running around with all all the Christian stuff. My job's in a Christian context. I work in a Christian organization. So it's nice to actually be in the same context as many of you to experience life that way with all of the challenges and constraints and everything else. And so for me, it just opens my eyes in a whole new way because it's I haven't had a non-church job um, I think since I was 20, 22, I think is the last time I was in the regular workforce, right? And this isn't quite regular because it's like three nights a week, every other week, and then filling in little pieces here or there. So it doesn't have quite the same demand, but it's awesome to, hey, I have to wear a uniform for the first time in a long time. I have a boss that I answer to. I need to clock in. I need to clock out. I have policies and rules and procedures that all need to be followed as the lowest person in the in the pecking order, so to speak. So I'm like, this is great. I'm actually thinking it's a great time. So uh, the other thing about this that I think was interesting, and this is kind of the topic of the day, was as I was preparing for my um, examination, right? Because that's all it comes down to is you study a ton of stuff and then it's it's a pass-fail on your certification exam. And, and it shows that there's a dramatic difference between studying to be a certified personal trainer and then actually sitting down with a person to train them. Like those two worlds are radically different kinds of worlds, right? And that kind of came to roost very profoundly last night as I had my first couple of clients, some high school age kids that I was doing some training with. And it was all just more that reminder of like, Matt, you know, you learned all kinds of really interesting stuff, but if you don't know how to translate this in an easy to access context, it's all for naught, all right? So here's why then the topic of the day is this difference between knowledge and wisdom and everything else. And that's kind of why I, I 
or at least my, my brain is in that space because I'm kind of thinking about it in the context of this new thing that I'm doing, but more broadly, it reminds me of a challenge I have in my Christian context as well. So for all who know me, um, you know I'm an information junkie. Like, that's my jam, man. I want to be the dude that spends his life prepping for Jeopardy, you know? So I love data points. I love meaningless facts. I love just any kind of information. That's how I roll. I am terrible, terrible, especially in my reading diet. I am terrible at novels, stories, fiction. I don't do it. Like, I'll bet in the last decade I have read one kind of fictiony type book. Now, I'm all about tell me how to do a thing. Let's work on some philosophical problem. Let's solve some theological issue, whatever it is. So that's kind of where I roll. And so I love information, right? But the problem is if I just love information, but I'm not figuring out how to create utility with that information, then it will just stay information and it won't translate into application. It won't change, translate into wisdom for life. And when it comes to particularly the Bible, I believe the first phase should be knowledge. But knowledge is not the be-all, end-all, or the goal. Like, hey, I studied that book. I know it theologically, exegetically, you know, kind of interpretive, context-wise, and I do nothing with it, right? Then, then, then the whole purpose God, for the whole reason that God gave it to us is not so we could just study it and know it and then park it right there. But so that we would actually go, then how do I wrestle with this? And how do I take this ancient book and apply it to a real world context in the 21st century in the United States with the limitations and challenges and hardships and biases that this culture has that were different than the culture that it originally was written in or for or whatever else? Because that's what wisdom is all about. It's saying, all right, I'm going to take this 2,000-year-old idea that was in the Roman Empire with a group of people that were marginalized, and I'm going to figure out how to apply it. And in the 21st century, to me, as somebody that has a level of privilege, pretty comfortable life, doesn't have the Roman Empire breathing down my neck. I don't have the same persecution problems or anything else, but how do I live this out wisely in my current life, right? And that's always to be the mission of the everyday missionary. It is to say, I don't want to just be studying to play Bible Jeopardy. I want to be looking at this so I wrestle with it so I do it, and I do it with sensitivity, I do it with grace, I do it with mercy, so that as I do it, it's compelling for those who watch my life and maybe can be stimulated to ask about my life, or I can tell them about my life because my life really is different. It's shaped by the principles of the book, not just the morals of the book, but the overarching principles of the book. I'm taking the knowledge, I'm translating it into wisdom, which is then applied in real-life context in such a way that others are, are encouraged by, stimulated by, curious about my life in hopefully a positive way. And then I can be sharing who Jesus is, why life is better with Jesus, all of that kind of thing. Like that's got to be kind of the mission behind this, right? And in a part, I think about this uh, as it relates to Jewish tradition, right? So um, in part, maybe let me, let me take a step back for a second and maybe why I found myself wrestling with it so much this week. I'm going to use this whole personal training thing again, and then I'm going to port it over into this biblical thing, right? So um one of the things in in going through the material uh, for my certification is you learn 
about muscle function, right? That inside a muscle is sacromeres and inside the sacromeres are actin and myosin. And these are like these little filaments that slide back and forth. And uh, as you contract a muscle, they tighten inside those sacromeres. And when you lengthen the muscle, when you kind of lower, let's say like a bicep curl and you're lowering your arm down, it pulls those filaments apart and you're trying to put those under load and tension because you're actually wanting to stress it, do a little damage to it so it tears it. So then it reheals and grows a little bit more muscle. Those are muscle motors that are then attached to basically your neuromuscular system. And so your brain's telling your muscle to do this thing and your muscle does this thing and everything else. So for me, I just get all nerded out like, oh, I love the science of this. I love how there's a mechanical element, a neuromuscular element, all kind of rolled into one, everything else. But then when I meet up with a 14-year-old high school girl to show her how this equipment works, all of that knowledge on muscles is utterly useless if I don't know how to help her apply this in a down-to-earth real way, right? Because if I show up and I show her a machine and I say, okay, so and your muscles are sacromeres and you got my, you know, actin and myosin and you got all these things happening. These are motor units and it only pulls, it can't push. And I get in all this stuff and she's just like looking at me going, what seat height do I need, man? <laughs> like, how many pounds? How, how do how, how do I adjust the seat? How do I move the the, the apparatus? Because it looks like a torture device right now. And 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 see, my job isn't to overwhelm her with all of the knowledge. My job isn't to just be knowledgeable about all the science of it. No, what I need to do is help her to figure out. This is how you sit on it. This is how you adjust it. This is how you can feel confident and comfortable with what you're doing up here right now. I know there's other people standing around and you feel looked at right now, but don't worry, they're not paying attention to you. You can just do your thing and get into your own little zone. This can be great. And we're gonna figure out is 20 pounds good for you, 30 pounds, 40 pounds. It has become very practical really quick. And while in my mind and in my approach, all of that knowledge stuff is going to inform the practical. In other words, I don't wanna to put too much weight. I don't wanna put her in the wrong position. I don't want her having a wrong movement or a bad tempo or whatever else because I know the science that applies to this. I know the knowledge that applies. I need to translate this in a very simple way so that she says, oh, that feels great. That's about right. That's the right weight for me. And now I have confidence to come and do this by myself next week kind of thing, right? And so that's the translation. And in the same way then, I look at, hey, when it comes to us studying our Bibles and regroups or small contexts or on our own, when it comes to reading books on doctrine, theology, some informative element of the Christian faith, when we sit in messages on Sunday mornings or some other context and we're learning the data points of the Bible and the history and the culture and the context and the language and all the stuff you get into, at the end of the day, that knowledge base is just phase one, right? And phase one needs to then move to phase two. And phase two is saying, how do I take that knowledge and then make it usable? How do I apply it in such a way that then in the application, which I think application has wisdom and then wisdom applied, right? So I'm kind of using these a little bit interchangeably, but I think we're going from knowledge to wisdom, wisdom to application in the real world. That means we have to do our homework. And we have to figure out what that means. And we have to understand that the underlying element of this is applying it, in my opinion, in the tone of grace, in the tone of mercy, in the tone of uh, long-suffering. The Bible loves the word long-suffering or endurance. We have to apply these things wisely with endurance because here's the thing about the Bible. It communicates to us uh, in very um, definitive terms, right? So it has a very idealized message. 
and that's good, right? It lays out the ideals. In fact, after the book of Numbers, I'm going to be doing the the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And I've titled that series, Divided We Stand, which sounds really weird. But throughout John's letters, he puts everything in very black and white terms, right? It's either idols or God. It's either lies or truth. It's either, either darkness or light. Like he, everything is very hyper divided in his letter Yet the theme of his letters, love, and so weirdly enough, he uses hyperbole a ton and it becomes the teaching tool by which he's saying, but practically this has to turn into your application of genuine, generous loving in the real world. So sometimes we say idealized knowledge is given to us so that we wrestle with the ideal and in wisdom come up with something then practical, rooted in the ideal, but still practical and gracious and thoughtful and long-suffering because when we apply it in the real world, the real world is messy. In fact, it reminds me of the old line, no great plan survives first contact with the enemy. And so as soon as you execute the plan and the enemy is a part of the plan, the enemy begins to put pressure on your perfect plan. The perfect plan starts to kind of unravel and you have to improvise in such a way to make it real practical in whatever context you're dealing with. Same then for us. And this is where I go back to this idea of the Jewish culture as it relates to the ideal law and then having wisdom to then figure out how to be applicational with it. So what Jewish tradition's done, and we as evangelicals, we struggle with this one a little bit more, but I love the Jewish heritage on this. Um, they would look at the law, the 600 plus laws, and they would say, okay, these are the ideal tenets of God. And these were given to Israel, you know, way back with Moses, Exodus, Egypt, and everything else. And that environment was very particular. In other words, when you read through Leviticus, for example, you're going to come across laws where you're like, I have no clue what to do with that. Like, why on earth did God care if you wore a polycotton blend? You know what I mean? You're like, you can't have mixed clothing. Why can't you have mixed clothing? Well, for them, that would have had some cultural context about, again, you know, other populations that were following other gods would make a big deal about the worship of those gods having to do with certain things that were blending things together. And so God kind of iconically grounds people and saying, hey, we don't want to have the same danger of blending things like they do. So God creates a very definitive black and white, only cotton or only polyester, but you can't do both together because you don't want to start blending God and other things. And so for them, that law had a lot of meaning for them very concretely, right? Don't boil a goat in its own mother's milk. Had a very, like, you're like, ah, I, I have, I'm not tempted to do that, right? But for them, it had a very particular cultural context. But the Jewish tradition said, you know what? We don't have to worry about goats being boiled in their own mother's milk. But what can we learn about that law that could pour it over into other things that would be wise, right? And you might even look at that one and say there's a certain level of cruelty uh, as far as you're boiling a goat in its own mother's milk. Like that just seems like you had to really shut off a part of your brain and get kind of dark to do that and other cultures would do that. And so it may be more like, hey, we need to realize that that law at its core in wisdom is about being thoughtful, being kind, being merciful, that kind of thing. And so now you have the wisdom of a weird law and then you go, okay, I can then apply that in the real world, right? I don't want to be a person of cruelty. I want to be a person of kindness. And so don't boil a goat in its own mother's milk really is an application of, hey, don't be so cold-hearted as to actually take a small little newborn and then take its mother, take its milk, kill its mother. You know, like, like all of that would just say, that's kind of a cruel approach to dealing with animals, right? So that's the idea that the Jews would do. So every generation then looks at the law and they wrestle with the law. 
and then they would write down the wrestling and they would write down their applications and they'd pass on to the next generation and then they would look at the law and they would look at the heritage of their previous generation as it related to the law and the way they wrestled through it and then the new generation would be like here's our new conclusions and they've handed that down generation to generation and it's like they have this green light that says it is good to take the idealized Bible and keep turning it and wrestling and seeing the new things that come out because that is the pursuit of wisdom. So knowledge is concrete. Wisdom is a little bit more abstract and it's trying to just say, hey, how do I principalize the ideal? How do I see the deeper thing that underlines the laws, right? Because the laws can be so blunt sometimes. We don't try to think, oh, well, what is... What is this deeper thing that it's grounded in, right? And and then from that, how do I take that deeper thing and figure out how to live it in my own life? And then in that, how do I live it in such a way that's really applied in a daily way and it is applied in a way that is gracious? And I think that's the chain. Knowledge to wisdom to application in a gracious way. See, I think this is important because I do see sometimes in our evangelical context where we love study and we love to know what does it mean and we want to find that one singular answer, which again, if we're really honest, there's a lot of parts of the Bible. If there was just one singular answer, uh, none of us know which one of us has that one singular answer. So in some ways, it has a level of ambiguity that we struggle with as it is. But but we want to wrestle and then from that go, okay, as best as I can tell, this would be the underlying principle of this rule, law, code, theology, whatever else. Uh, and, and then from that, I realize that I have to hold that gently um, with with conviction of heart, but gentle in my in my um, conviction about it, and then from that I want to figure out how I can live it. See, uh, sometimes, like I said, in our evangelical context, we're so much about the knowledge of the answer uh, that we don't always try to figure out the wisdom that that is underneath the principle, uh, and then from that we're not always gracious with how we then want to see that 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 knowledge base of the Bible applied in the real world. Or sometimes we look at the knowledge of the Bible and we go, well, the world is violating the knowledge of the Bible. And so we're not gracious toward the world. And yet that's not going to be an effective missionary, right? That may be an effective prophet, right? <laughs> like, you know, the Old Testament prophets were constantly up in everybody's face about it. We got to remember that was also God's own community that they had already agreed that they all believed the Bible was the truth of God. When we're out here in the real world, one of the things that we want to be really cautionary about is telling the real world how much they're violating a Bible that they don't believe in, adhere to, or actually think is the word of God. Like this is where, again, what we're wanting to do is say, I'm the bridge between that knowledge base and the real world because I'm trying to then bring it wisely and thus graciously to the world that I live in, right? In fact, if anything, what I would really say is that our, our agenda is to be people that are profoundly committed to our own uh, living out and uh, obedience to the standard of God, but we're doing it in such a way that isn't then looking like it condemns everybody else because they don't, but rather we do it in such a way that looks compelling to everybody else because we do, and we do with a lot of dependence on God. We do with a lot of humility before God. We do with a lot of prayerfulness unto God because we know that's really what it takes for us to live this out in a faithful sort of way. And so to recap again, hey, we should be studiers. We should want to grow in knowledge. But just like my certification, all of that information, if I can't translate that into a real world environment that brings aid, resource, care, thoughtfulness to the world around me, I'm going to kind of fail in what this is. In fact, Jesus talks about this with the religious leaders of his day. 
He's like, you honor me with your mouths. You have the right answers. You know what it says, but you don't really do it. And you certainly don't do it graciously. He's like, what you do is you put burdens on people too great to bear. That's not helpful. You're taking your knowledge and you're overwhelming others with it. As opposed to you're supposed to take the knowledge, figure out how to wisely own it, wisely live it in a way that is truly generous to others, wants to promote flourishing in the world. And then from that, others go, wow, I see how useful what it, what you believe is, as opposed to I see how knowledgeable you think you are. Because that's always the tension point, right? The, the outside world, as they look at Christians, they go, y'all think you know everything. Right? And I get it because I think sometimes we talk as though we do know everything and that's not accurate. And what we do know, well, we need to then translate into being truly wise, knowing when to say something, when not to say something, how to say something, how to say something more in a way that is inviting versus kind of alienating because that's what we're called to. We're called to be the translators in this world. And I think that's fundamentally what I'm getting at today, right? That when it comes to the order of things, it's like between the Bible and and a disbelieving world stands you and I. And we're the interpretive device between those things, which is why we want to be wise and why we want to be applicational. Because for the world, they're probably not going to read the book, but they're going to read us, right? And if we're kind of in this space of it's Bible and then me between a uh, disbelieving world, um, I want to make sure I am the best representation of what this book is all about, who this Jesus really is, what this God is seeking to communicate. And I got to realize that, man, it all hangs in the balance on my sense of wisely being the go-between, sensitively being the go-between, consistently being the go-between, being a safe go-between for a disbelieving world. Because just even in the last week, the more I'm out of the fishbowl, the more I'm talking to and meeting people that have been wounded by us as the translators between the book and the disbelieving world. And so more and more all the time, I'm certain it's incumbent on us to disrupt the stereotype, to display something different, to be those who, again, live it in our own lives, but live it with the generosity and grace so that those around us can see this life in us. And maybe from that, they go, hey, I want something different too. And so what is our objective for the day, right? Hey, study your Bible, read your books, listen to podcasts, grow in knowledge, have all kinds of information in your head, and then wrestle and wrestle with it and figure out how do I take this 2,000-year-old idea and make it usable on Thursday in 2023 in the January period or whatever. Like, how do I apply this in a wise, wise way? How do I know how to take those principles and let them meet the real-world problems of today in such a way that it shows God's word and message is timeless, right? That it has a certain level of flexibility to be used and applied. And while sometimes there isn't a quote verse for this modern problem, there can be a principle that can be wisely ported over and then from that graciously lived out. And I think the more we can kind of get to that, the more we can strive for that, the more we say that's the priority and what I'm doing. So I'm not just teaching so I have information, but rather I'm not just rather learning so I have information from teachers, but I'm learning so I can be wisely doing, man, the more we do that, I think the more we will be effective everyday missionaries.